The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Morning and welcome to Squawk Box. We're live from Abu Dhabi in London this morning. Here are your headlines. Kicking the can down the road, the U.S. narrowly avoids a shutdown after both chambers agree on a short-term funding deal. President Biden plays politics, pointing fingers at hardline Republicans. My extremists once again have brought us to the brink, this time to a government shutdown. Enough is enough is enough. This is not that complicated. The brinkmanship has to end. Crude prices close out the third quarter almost 30% higher as Saudi Arabia and Russia look to keep supplies tight through to year-end. Stay tuned as we speak to the CEOs of BP, Shell and other major international energy groups about the challenges of the energy transition. A key U.S. inflation gauge posts its smallest increase in nearly three years, boosting hopes the Fed could be done with hikes, while the S&P 500 sees its worst trading month of the year. The Chinese factory activity expands for the first time in six months, but a private sector survey still comes in softer than expected as the country eases into its Golden Week holiday. We have a special show planned for you today. Plenty of coverage with Steve out of Abu Dhabi as we talk about energy security and energy transition. But let's kick off the week with the big events that have transpired over the weekend as the U.S. Senate has passed a last-minute spending bill just three hours before a midnight deadline Saturday night, avoiding a government shutdown. The bill allows the government to stay open for 45 days, giving the House and Senate more time to finish their funding legislation. The 71-page short-term bill allocates disaster relief funds but does not include new financial assistance for Ukraine's ongoing war with Russia. President Biden signed the bill into law and said he hoped the Ukraine aid would come later. Although the Speaker and overwhelming majority of the Congress have steadfastly supported Ukraine to defend itself against the aggression and brutality of the Russians' attack on women and children in addition to the military in Ukraine, uh, there's no Ukraine funding in this agreement. Despite that, I did not believe we could let millions of Americans go through the pain of a government shutdown. But let's be clear. I hope my friends on the other side keep their word about support for Ukraine. They said they're going to support Ukraine in a separate vote. We cannot, under any circumstance, allow American support for Ukraine to be interrupted. So at this point, the market's receiving a dose of good news before the open. And we've got Steve back on board with us, too, this morning. Steve, uh, dramatic events. I know you're on the ground covering another big story around energy security and transition as we talk about the pricing of a key import here, just as oil prices have been rising again as uh, the market focuses on the Fed, what the Fed may do. But in the backdrop, there's still a lot of politics. A government shutdown looks to be averted here, but it will come at a cost potentially for the House Speaker McCarthy. This, I think, still has a few question marks over for the markets as they get going this week. Absolutely. And very good morning to you uh, from Abu Dhabi, Karen. Yeah, look, look, there are so many issues here. The, the market, of course, was, was looking negatively at a credit event risk for the US government. 
but the market should still be very, very circumspect and careful about that very event, shouldn't it? Because we've got a 45-day window here as well. We've got absolute chaos in the GOP, and, and that's what the GOP is saying itself, let alone what the Democrats are looking at it uh, from afar as well. So you've got a chaotic situation there. How good is this news in terms of a foundation to buy equities now or to buy treasuries now? And I would suggest it's a very shaky foundation because, yeah, OK, great. The, sh the shutdown's averted for now. So what do you do? You buy the market because you think, what, one of the risk factors is taken out? Well, even if you go along that line, let's just go with that scenario as well. That means, obviously, that, that, that you have a more stable background. That means that the US economy has taken out another negative factor potentially or has it in which case you want to buy the market because you think there's, what, less chance of a rate cut now? So you know, you, if you work out your decision tree, your path dependency on making that purchase for clicking that mouse, it's very difficult to see how, how you're going to do that. Plus the fact you've got the economic situation, which in the US at the moment, and we're going to get plenty of gauges on this from the JOLT survey, from the initial jobless figures as well. Um, we're going to get payrolls on Friday, which is actually the, the key piece of data as well. What happens if that data continues to come in strong as well? Why, why would you buy equities with that if you think that actually that the market is going to stay higher for longer on interest rates as well? So again, very, very difficult to see the decision tree that will make you want to buy uh, equities on the back of the news over the weekend. Feels like there's been a lot of posturing leading up to this too, Steve. Uh, Matt Gates, who's been one of the, the hardliners on the Republicans, was actually one of the members, if you recall, that actually forced about, uh, what, two dozen hardliners to uh, push McCarthy to go through multiple voting rounds earlier in the year, all to ensure that there was this extra rule that one speaker could ask for a rule change here, effectively calling for a vote to ask the speaker. So I think fascinating, almost a setup, a precursor to what we've now seen as uh, there are calls for McCarthy to be removed potentially that's forthcoming and Getz has been telling multiple outlets, media outlets that he will actually ask or file for a motion for him to vacate. So let's see how that rolls through this week. In terms of what the markets are doing at this stage, this is how we wrapped up the trade Friday. Again, further downbeat action across on the Dow and the S&P 500 in contrast to the Nasdaq. So we saw across the course of the trading week a pullback of about 1.3% for the Dow. Uh, the S&P also in course, fourth negative trading week in a row. But the Nasdaq snapping some of that red ink and actually gaining just slightly to push into positive territory also for the trading week along with the session. In terms of sectors, well, what a big week it was as we wrapped up the quarter and the month. We saw, of course, a consumer discretion, one of the weaker areas for the trading month, but at least in the Friday session, it was a better performer over the trading week, the month, the quarter. Energy was the place to pivot. And we certainly saw the rally in the price taking with it the energy stocks. Underperformers over the course of the trading week, utilities, and that was the same story for the quarter. I want to take you to Treasuries. It was a move that we saw, that we're watching very closely last week, that Treasury marching higher at the long end. And you can see even as we begin a new trading week, 4.61, we're approached much more elevated levels. This has been a, a much stronger backdrop for the dollar trade as well. The fact we've got yields higher at the long end, the short end of this curve. And just take a look at how the dollar is performing for the Monday session. Sterling euro again on the back foot versus these trades. 121.89 on sterling euro dollar, 105.67, the level we're looking at. So more slippage here, dollar supported versus the Japanese yen. And uh, don't forget, uh, China is closed this week for Golden Week. So we're not looking for any major market moves there. As for WTI and Brent, uh, as we take a look at the commodity this morning, above 90 closing and 91 on Brent, uh, another two tenths plus. 
and above the 92 handle on Brent as we march higher by another tenth of a percent. To the Asian markets, most of them are shut. Uh, Hong Kong, China, for Golden Week, uh, South Korea, also India. So not a lot of liquidity across in the world on that part of the region. The Japanese stock market, it's leaning higher. We've got a, a really a very close mark on 32,000 points at this stage, not far off that level. The Australian market just drifting south along with stocks out of the New Zealand market. U.S. futures. A quick look as we get set up for that trade stateside. I mentioned that mixed finish on Wall Street Friday, but as we look ahead to this week, and don't forget there's a ton of jobs data coming out. We've got the markets called for a bounce this morning. You can see it on Dow Jones futures, 140 plus points to the upside. The Fed's preferred gauge of inflation rose less than expected in August. Core PCE increased 0.1% on the month and 3.9% on the year, the first sub-4 reading in almost two years. Inflation on the month was largely driven by energy costs, which accelerated 6.1%. Food prices rose 0.2%. On, your, on an annual basis, they both fell. Let's get to Uma Moriarty, who is a senior investment strategist, Centre Square Investment Management. Uma, let me kick it off with the politics first up, because it was an event for a week, a weekend on the Hill. And what we saw effectively, a government shutdown averted here, but still a ton of hardline politics coming through with the Republicans. What's your read in on the ramifications of equities, given that this is a presidential year as well? Thanks for having me. You know, and I think this is the 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 outcome here was largely as expected, right? We get to the last minute and we find some sort of a resolution that just kind of kicks the can down the road, which is what we've seen here. I think the big question is really what what happens 45 days from now and, and how this all really shapes up as we go into next year, as you mentioned, just in terms of the election that's really coming up. What's interesting here really, though, is the fact that we continue to see a lot of spending across the board and a lot of that really fueled by debt. And you just mentioned a lot of what you're seeing across the debt markets and treasury yields. We're seeing that cost of servicing debt increase further. And that's something I think from our perspective, just as we look forward into what's happening here from a political perspective, something that we're watching here at Center Square. It's a great point, isn't it? The debt side in the United States closely watched at this point, just as we've seen that yield also increase. What are the big drivers here as we take a look at yields this week? Because we know that there's a lot of jobs data crossing. The market has been very sensitive to the jobs numbers as well. Absolutely. You know, over the last week and a half to two weeks, I think what's really been driving what's happening from the yield curve perspective is really the Fed's messaging around expecting rates to be higher for longer, really effectively taking the expectation of rate cuts off of the table early next year, right? And so this jobs data that we're looking for this year, even the inflation data that we saw last week, we're really starting to see a lot more data that supports the Fed effectively being done raising rates at this point. But I think the question really then becomes, at what point do they start to really cut back? It seems like their messaging currently is that we're just going to sit here higher for a little bit longer. Uma, lovely to speak to you from the Middle East here as well. I was looking at your copy and I was looking at your uh, your analysis on REITs as well. I know it's something Mr. Buffett has been looking at and investing in as well. I have to say, though, I'm very interested at the stage of the cycle we're at to invest in REITs as opposed to the private sector as well. I've got to be honest, I just think there's a hell of a lot of optimism out there ahead of what could potentially be a very sticky period as well. But you think valuations look compelling? Absolutely. And you mentioned compared to the private markets, right? When we think about what happens to real estate from a valuation perspective as it relates to the rising interest rate environment, 
REITs in the public markets have really been repriced for that. We saw that happen last year, and we've seen it happen pretty rapidly over the last few months as we've seen that rate increase again. On the private market side, we just have not seen pricing really adjust to this new reality of debt costs. And so as we sit here today, from a valuation perspective, REITs actually look pretty cheap, but not only just compared to private real estate, but across the equity market as well, right? We've seen so far this year some exuberance across the broader equity market, partly driven by this expectation for a soft landing, partly driven by exuberance around artificial intelligence. But we haven't seen that same sort of you know, multiple expansion in the REIT market. At the same time, you're seeing earnings pretty steady, cash flow is pretty steady. So from that perspective, REITs look pretty attractive here, especially if we're getting to a point where we're done with the Fed raising rates. But, but are we getting to that point where the Fed is done raising rates? And even if they do, Uma, I think the market is just having this horrible readjustment where they realize it's not going to be, oh, they've stopped raising rates, hence we go and get the rate cuts as well. Everyone's pushing back to the latter half of 2024 when the rate cuts could even be contemplated. Plus the fact there is a lot of debt attached to this uh, sector as well. I hear what you're saying about the absolute REIT valuations, but it's a sector that needs to refinance as well and refinance a lot more aggressively as well. At the same time, when there are concerns uh, about occupancy in certain parts of the REIT market. Yeah, I think a lot of what you mentioned, right, from an occupancy perspective, a lot of that really focused in the office market. Across public REITs in the U.S., office REITs are less than 4% of the entire REIT market, right? We have a lot of other property types across REITs that really stand out well today. A lot of things getting a lot of those secular demand tailwinds that are going to actually boost occupancies. Things like senior housing and healthcare, we have this aging population moving into those areas. Areas like data centers, right? Getting so much demand from artificial intelligence and just a general global, you know, digitalization that we're seeing across the world today. A lot of those areas screen really strong from an occupancy fundamental rate growth perspective. You mentioned leverage, something that I'll point out from the REIT market perspective, the REIT market is about only 30% levered, right? Very, very different compared to the private market, which has leverage closer to the 60, 70, 80%. And that's where you get to the issues where, okay, you have those refinancings coming in, especially across lower quality office properties in the private market where valuations are getting cut down enough that your equity gets wiped out. But that's a very different conversation in the private market compared to the public market, which is why we're so bullish on REITs today, because they've been repriced at this point. They have low leverage, strong balance sheets, and some really, really great secular demands that are helping out property types that are today a much bigger part of the REIT market. Uh, Uma, there's so much about this segment I've enjoyed. I, I've loved listening to your commentary as well. It's great speaking to you again from San Francisco. I also love that R over your right shoulder, camera left. Absolutely fantastic. It's almost David Bowie-esque with the, the flash across the face. I love it, Uma. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Uma Moriarty, Senior Investment Strategist at Centre Square Investment Management. Right, well, here we are discussing energy. We're, this is almost part of a, a double whammy. I'm delighted that I'm, I'm with uh, Dan Murphy here because we've got Adipec now. This is historically an oil conference. Then it became about oil and gas, and now we're energy companies, aren't we, over here? It's not, no one calls it oil and gas anymore, although 
Maybe oil and gas is having a, a bit of a redux as well. But in the meantime, the oil price is one of the few things out there that remains relatively robust as well. You've got 92.31 uh, on Brent as well. So just finding a little bit of form after just coming off its highs last week. But let us remember at a time when treasuries are falling aggressively, when S&P valuations fell, equity markets around the globe risk off, yeah? Uh, apart from Brent, apart from WTI. Yes, WTI put on 29% the last quarter. Brent put on 27% the last quarter. And out of 11 sectors in the United States, guess how many were up in the last month? Yeah, you're right, one. And you know the answer, it was energy. So let us move on. Uh, earlier, Dan Murphy and I, we spoke to the NE CEO, that's uh, Claudio Descalzi. Uh, and we asked him if Europe is falling behind in the energy transition. There is a big difference between the US and Europe. First of all, because we don't have our resources. US is rich in resources, gas, oil, and uh, incentives. There, there is fiscal space to do that. In Europe, there is no, just yeah. Germany has fiscal space. Uh, we pay also now at least five, five times more the energy or the gas respect to the US. So the competitiveness is not there. We have to take care about sustainability, uh, energy security, volume and price and competitiveness. That is something that, so we have to put everything together. Otherwise, also the transition is at risk. That was a man I've been to for goodness me. It's, it's probably my, my first uh, uh, Adipec, Dan. Uh, 2009, I think it was 2010. Wow. I don't know as well, but I've been around unfortunately a long oh, time. You're showing your age with Steve. I've I, 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 you know, shown my and, age sitting next to you. I'm going to tell you, it's, it's, it's like an old kind of Model T sitting next to the latest Mustang. It's, it's, it's quite <laughs> unnerving, and I, I love my head of news. But my goodness me, she's she's pulled a trick on me now. Uh, it's lovely to sit next to you and be here with you. And, and, you and as thank well, you Steve. very much indeed for inviting me back to the Middle East as well. But but look look. There, there is so much going on here uh, that we that I love just taking a gauge of what they're thinking on the ground. And actually, I'm I'm relatively surprised already. One of my first takeaways from this meeting is the industry is less defensive than I thought it would be already. We've already spoken to Inpex, the big Japanese player. We've spoken to Claudia Descalzi as well. We're going to be speaking to pretty much well, I don't know, most of the big CEOs on the planet of energy, or one or two of the US majors accepted as well in the next couple of days. Uh, and I think it's great to get a gauge on how the industry sees itself now what it sees its responsibility now and with the COP process going forward as well. And just to say that they talk a lot in buzzwords here, a bit like when you go to um, WEF, you can't move for the word polycrisis. Well, here you can't move for the word energy trilemma. Every single one of the communications people has drummed it into these CEOs. You've got to talk about the trilemma. You've got to talk about affordability, reliability, uh, sustainability as well. But the fact of the matter is, I, I was surprised already at how much the energy industry appears to be on board for the transition. I hope it's not just words. I hope there's action behind it. Yeah, look, I think what we're seeing is an ownership of a problem in order to be part of the solution. Finally, oil and gas has a seat at the table at the COP28 climate conference in November. And that is something that the industry has been calling out for. The executives that you and I speak to are clearly concerned about the pace of the transition and the impact that it's going to have on their operating models moving forward. I think one of the other really interesting things that we're going to be focusing on over the next few days is exactly what are these companies doing to accelerate their own decarbonisation agenda, to invest in renewables and alternative fuels and clean capture hydrogen, etc., in order to really move this uh, needle forward when it comes to the climate agenda. It's something that uh, Dr. Sultan, the CEO of ADNOC and the president-designate of COP28 has really championed and spearheaded. Just, just put it in context what you just said there, something that has 
incredibly controversial amongst many green groups as well. Absolutely. This is a man that you especially have been speaking to here for a very long time. I've had the pleasure of meeting. In fact, the first time I met Dr. Solitano, one of the first times, I was in Margate. Now, if anyone doesn't know where Margate is, it's a seaside town, quite a dilapidated seaside town in Kent. Why was I talking to Dr. Sultan there? Because Adnock were part of one of the biggest um, turbine arrays off the coast that has been built in Europe. And that was, that was over a decade ago as well. So just very interesting that even though he has this reputation of being an oil man through and through, Adnock is doing some stuff, and very important stuff, on the transition as well. Yeah, absolutely. He's taken ownership of, uh, of that role as president-designate of, of COP28. And, you know, they held this, this uh, closed-door meeting yesterday on Sunday here in the UAE, bringing together leaders, trying to talk about some of the solutions within the sector that they can particularly spearhead at COP28. And I was fortunate enough to sit on the sidelines of that meeting. I spoke with the uh, CEO of COP28 for more insights, uh, if you will, Steve, on exactly what the tone of that conversation was and his part of our exchange. Listen into this. There's a growing realization in the oil and gas industry that as a result of climate change, the social license to operate is precarious. They have to begin to demonstrate in the public eye what they're prepared to do in terms of preparing for the future. And in fact, it's not only good for climate change, emissions reductions, it's also future-proofing their businesses. How are they going to diversify their businesses in the future when the energy transition begins to gather pace at scale? Uh, so I think what we, we would ask them to do is look at the future in a different way. Be responsible, both towards your business, but also to the global community. Step up and be part of the solution. So step up and be part of the solution. That's the message from the COP28 CEO there. And Steve, when you talk about some of these solutions here, I've got a fun fact for you. Listen to this. Investment in clean energy technologies by the oil and gas industry still today is less than 5% of what it spends on exploration and production, according wow. to the IEA. And herein lies the problem. The transition is still well off track. There is much more work to be done, but at least we're hearing positive signals from industry yeah. about what they're doing about gotta it. Gotta be honest, your idea of a fun fact rather than a quite dismal fact, I gotta say, uh, I don't know if I want to be around any of your parties, if that's your fun fact. Dis maybe a dismal fact, but look, a fact nevertheless. More like a Halloween fact for the transition, <laughs> but uh, excellent point. Uh, look, um, you're going to be speaking, well, we're going to be speaking to someone fantastic in a few moments. I can see him over my eye line, but as well, but uh, coming up, one of the greatest experts in the business. Absolutely. The one and only Dan Jurgen, Global Vice Chairman of S&P, coming up for you on the other side of this. And when I tell you we're talking to some big players in the industry, I, I mean it. Uh, up and coming after we speak to Dan a little bit later on this morning I'm going to be on a panel uh, it, it's called actions for a net zero world but okay here, here I've got I've got the CEOs of BP on there Occidental Petroleum Oxy uh, I've got any I've got Shell uh, Petronas as well so six of the biggest energy companies on the planet hopefully I'll do it justice who knows <laughs> uh, that's coming up at 11 a.m. Central European time live here from Adipet Karen missing you but uh, um, you're doing a stellar job as ever on the ground missing holding the fort but it sounds like you need it on the ground there anyway to help Dan out with his fun facts. So we'll give you a bit of a breather to work on that. Now, coming up on the show, we'll be live in Manchester today as well as UK Chancellor Jeremy Hunt prepares to speak at what is likely to be the Conservative Party's final conference before a general election. Plus, we'll have the latest from Germany as the country gears up for a crucial set of regional elections. 
And as you can hear, there's plenty more to come from Adapex throughout the show, including our conversation with the former BP CEO and Beyond Net Zero Chairman, Lord John Brown. Don't miss that first on CMC interview at 9am CET. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. The chairman of China's Evergrande, Hui Kaiyan, is reportedly being investigated for transferring assets overseas while the property developer struggles to complete projects at home. That's according to the Wall Street Journal. Evergrande shares were suspended from trade last week amid reports that Hui had been detained by police. Chinese factory activity expanded for the first time in six months in September, according to an official survey. PMI rose to 50.2, that was ahead of forecasts. A separate private Kaishin survey also showed growth, but at a slower pace than expected, coming in at 50.6, down from the 51 level in August. And let's get out to Sam for more. Sam, we're picking through every piece of data out of China, hoping that there's some glimmer of hope and that it's turning a corner. But the World Bank just put out some uh, revised forecasts, and they're now talking about growth next year in China of 4.4%, so 5% expected to remain elusive for some time. Very good morning to you, Karen. That's right. And we're also seeing that a number of banks um, continue to downgrade their forecasts as well. That was more recently uh, last week when we saw a couple of banks actually now looking at uh, sub 5%, so lower than what the government is punching uh, for at around 5% growth. But, um, you know, the data today, or I should say that we got out over the weekend, uh, which we are digesting today, certainly does um, continue to show that we are seeing signs of recovery and the overall trend is a positive one, particularly when you look at the state and bigger firms, uh, as you pointed out with the official numbers, which expanded um, actually the first time in around six months. So it does look like those firms are starting to benefit perhaps from some of the policy steps we've seen announced in recent months. And as we have seen a bit of a pickup in domestic demand, when you look at services sector activity at the bigger and state-owned firms as well, um, things are heading in the right direction too. And so what this is, is further confirmation of those green shoots we started to see in August. And that is certainly uh, what many economists have been looking out for and what the markets will no doubt react to uh, once they come back in line next week. Um, but that has led that uh, sign of improvement, you could say, uh, many economists to believe that the economy is bottoming out now. Um, a bit of a mixed bag in terms of the data, though, uh, the Taishin survey, which looks at the smaller and private firms, uh, still above the boom or bust line. So overall uh, positive. Uh, we did see a bit of a softening, um, certainly with some of those factories because this survey does capture a greater share of those exporters. So the domestic demand story wasn't enough to actually offset some of the overseas demand. Uh, and so that wasn't surprising that 
a survey which does look at more um, factories that do export is now looking at business confidence at a 12-month low. So not quite out of the woods yet. Um, as I said, a mixed bag of data, uh, but certainly it does continue to show further signs of a pickup, particularly for the manufacturing sector, which has been slower to keep up with the pace of the post-reopening rebound we've seen on the services side of the equation, Karen. Sam, one of the big drivers still seen technology in China, just how cutting edge the Chinese can move when it comes to semiconductors, whether with quantum computing and the general pace of retail, thanks to the huge window they have with those tech platforms. I know you're going to be speaking about a lot of this with East Tech West coming up. Absolutely, Karen, because with a title like East Tech West, you have to talk about technology, I suppose. And we've seen such a compelling story playing out over in China more recently with some of the developments, of course, as you mentioned, with the breakthroughs that they're making on the chip front in the face of the US sanctions, especially when you look at what Huawei has been doing with SMIC, um, but also when you look at what they're doing in terms of their chat GPT style rivals, the Unibot, uh, the likes of Baidu, Alibaba and Tencent really seem to be ahead of the game here. But we're also going to be talking about uh, investment opportunities, um, but also um, some of the uh, AI, or I should say navigating some of the challenges, um, the complex challenges that China is facing, no doubt, like many other economies in the world, with trying to get ahead uh, in this race of development, but also very much aware of the risks. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.